Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition, to win at work, drive your career forwards, and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello everybody and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. Now, um, a bit of an interesting divergence of topic today. So with me today, I have Alan Jagalinza, who co-directs the Cambridge Centre for Financial Reporting and Accountability. Say that fast, I dare you. Um, and he's actually organised um, the Cambridge Disinformation Summit, which we'll talk to you guys about a bit about later. And one of the things I wanted to, to bring him on is to talk to us a little bit about disinformation, which of course is a big challenge, um, even with some of the structures that we have in um, in the world today. So welcome, Alan. Thank you very much for joining me. No, thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting about this. Absolutely. So so just before we get into the, the depths of the subject, so tell us a little bit about your background um, and uh, how did this you know topic come up? Is it something that you're you're seeing a lot of conversations about? Yeah, so interestingly, I think surprisingly relevant was I, I started my career as a United States Air Force pilot, which might actually not be relevant in the context of accounting, but it it colors this particular topic in some ways that I'll discuss in a few minutes. Um, I, I started my professional career teaching MBAs at Stanford, then I went to University of Colorado Boulder for about seven years, and then I migrated to Cambridge after doing a fellowship at the International Accounting Standards Board in London. And I've been at Cambridge about five years, and I've been working on accountability and particularly around, you know, transparency and the the way that we communicate information. And most of the work that I've done, both from a research lens and from a teaching lens, has been around how do we improve the communication about financial reporting about and now environmental reporting? How do we get better information into the markets? And so that's been the background for my entire career after I was flying in the Air Force. And then, you know, within the last three years or so, I've become very sensitive to sort of the crises that are floating around. So we have pandemic crisis, we have the rise of populism, we have um, forced human migration and a bunch of these other issues. And I, and I started noticing what I, was, what I sensed was a common thread to all of them, that they were all being amplified and accelerated by disinformation campaigns. Uh, many of which were running through social media, and I, and I reflected on the fact that as an account as an accountant, we're inherently you know we're our, our body is information science, and so I said, well, maybe we can learn more about that and expand the scope of our work in disinformation, and and even when you think in terms, I'm when you think in terms of our structure, our structure goes with audit and with regulatory bodies and things like that to try to prevent disinformation from affecting the market outcomes. And we do a pretty good job of that, but for the occasional um, fraud that gets exposed. But if we broaden scope, I think we could actually potentially have bigger impacts. So that's kind of where this all started. Oh, absolutely. And I, I can't believe you started as an RAF pilot. So, um, and how, how did that transition happen? What was it that made you decide to make yeah, that so, being so, a pilot? So since you have UK listeners, I was actually a United States Air Force pilot, but I did train with uh, RAF at, at some times. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I mean, I, I, I was always, I was trained with business backgrounds. So I always had business underlying and I was even doing some teaching and some learning while I was still flying airplanes. And this might surprise some of the audience, but at some point you become so fluent in flying that it no longer becomes challenging and you can become overly complacent. And I felt like I was becoming too complacent and I wasn't learning anymore. And I started thinking that I needed to go to graduate school. So that opened up this other path. And the way that relates in here is I see, I, I'm very sensitive to risk. I did a lot of risk planning. So I did combat flight planning when I was in the military and I sensed risk and information quality for us, for the flight planning. We relied on a lot of information 
to try to think about the risks. And we were never perfectly fed information because you can never really assess even things like weather, um, let alone threats from a, from a counter, you know, from an adversarial source. But the quality of the information into the decision-making process is critical. And, and that to me is sort of why I care so much about the quality of the information that we feed into decision-making around financial reporting and around financial decisions and capital allocation. And again, that's been the scope for a long, long time. Uh, but, but even on a larger societal scale, I see that, that the quality of information has been so severely degraded societally, and it's created such and exacerbated all the risks that I'm witnessing, including everything from geopolitical risk to war to, um, to, you know, to, to pandemic, all these risks are now becoming very vibrant and a lot of it's being fed on this engine. And you said that in, obviously in the accounting world, we see ourselves as being, you know, very good at having structures and mechanisms in place to prevent it. But actually, if we look over the last couple of years, there's been a number of scandals where information has been shared that has been wrong, um, in some cases very much purposely. So, you know, how is that How is that impacting on, you know, the way that we in accounting work and some of the, the changes that are happening at the moment? Is, is that a trend that you feel will be addressed or what can individuals do to, to change that trend? Well, I think I start from a holistic perspective where, um, you know, we've created infrastructure in our field that is actually arguably quite good. So we're unique. When I think in terms of all the information areas in, in accounting, particularly in, in publicly traded entities, we have so much structure. We have uh, financial reporting standards from the International Accounting Standards Board or, or in the U.S., the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board. Then we have audit standards and then we have regulatory intervention. We have audit committees and we have internal audit. We have boards and things like this. So we have a lot of structure. And then we also have um, media scrutiny and we even have my colleagues. We're out there looking for all kinds of stuff in the data. So a lot of this is publicly available and there's so much infrastructure here, but it isn't perfect because we do still have these outcomes that are, you know, that that usually manifest in, in some ways, it's not necessarily because the system is broken. It's because somebody within the system was compromised. And so a lot of, I think, I mean, don't let me wrong. I think there are definitely improvements we can do. And I'm constantly trying to source new improvements into how we do financial reporting. In, in, in many of my classes, we talk about how can we improve the standards or how can we even improve audit practice? Um, but at the end of the day, I think we have pretty decent infrastructure to source out fundamental fraud, it's not perfect. And usually if people are aligned with actually doing what the system is supposed to do, then I think you do engage and prevent it. Uh, what I find interesting though, is that despite the fact that that needs improvement, the fact that we even have that system now is, is interesting to me because I take a look, for example, in the United States where you've got one particular actor, a billionaire, who's trying to challenge the entire infrastructure and who's saying, hey, I have, fr I have free speech rights and I have a constitutional right over there to be able to say whatever it is I want. And here you've imposed all this structure. So, so it makes me wonder, how did we even evolve to where we actually have this structure? And is this structure, is this institutional stuff that we're actually relying on now where we say, yeah, it's imperfect, but at least it exists and we sort of trust within this, within this structure is that coming under attack under some, you know, hiding behind a, a free speech right claim? And can we go into some of our higher courts in our countries and tear all that system down? And that's the, the environment I think we're facing right now. Um, I don't know whether I answered your question specifically. I think you were really getting after, is there a way in which we can improve the system that we actually do have within, within the structure? I think that was your original question. But it's an interesting angle that you take about about that whole concept of free speech and the ability to to talk about your beliefs versus the actual facts in some cases. And that's that's an interesting trend, isn't it? You know, you do wonder because there's a lots of risk out there with, you know, if we just think about cryptocurrency, for instance, as a classic example, that's a really unregulated um, area, yet um, it's being 
but it's almost seen in the same light of some other currencies in some people's eyes. So, you know, what is, I guess, what is the exposure that we within, you know, with teams within finance have to some of this disinformation and this lack of regulation? And is it something that, you know, CFO should be concerned about? Uh, There's no question CFOs should be concerned about it. In fact, we just hosted a webinar with, um, with a practice partner who goes out and consults on disinformation risks, and they can come from various sources. So one is in the traditional sense where you've got information through your system that's just not correct. And, and I, I guess I guess I should step back and explain what disinformation means in, in a very strict context. Disinformation is a purposeful intent to basically present false information into a system. So there, there is an intention to be wrong or to feed at least partially wrong data into the system and to try to, and usually it's done to try to influence people's beliefs and get them to act. And so we de- we see disinformation fraud. I think financial fraud would be one where, you know, th- the idea there is where we're purposely providing false information in order to, you know, retain share price high or something like that to get people to actually behave in a certain way. You can certainly see disinformation floating around in politics around the world where we're trying to get people to vote in a certain way or, or to deny the outcome of a vote is something that we've seen a lot of, or to, you know, have a lot of gray area around who is responsible for a war uh, four hours uh, east of, of England. So, so, so disinformation has intent. And then there's also misinformation, which is not necessarily intentional. It's just that information is either misinterpreted or it's false, but for whatever reason, we disseminate that or that's spread, not necessarily intentionally, it's sort of unintentional, but it's not accurate. And so that can also be fact-checked. Within the context of my biggest concern is the sort of strategic decision to engage in disinformation and the implications that it has. The way it comes into the CFO framework is that you could have disinformation within your, your infrastructure. So this could come from suppliers, this could come from um, you know, things, for example, if you, if you're worried about the supply chain and the, the, I know there's a lot of focus, for example, on environmental issues in the supply chain, or even things like labor, how you do labor practice in your supply chain and whether you're violating labor, you know, human rights throughout your, your, your supply system. So there's, there could be disinformation in that, that could then become a bigger problem for you, uh, as an institution some of the other disinformation campaigns that we're seeing, and we just we just had this gentleman from PwC and their cybersecurity group come speak to us about this, where there could be specific campaigns trying to undermine your credibility. And so this could be product market disruption. This could be trying to manipulate your stock price. So there may be external actors who might be intentionally maligning your reputation to try to either manipulate stock price, maybe they're short seller tied in. Um, Alternatively, maybe they're trying to extract some litigation outcome from you or something like that. And we're seeing more and more and more of that. And he even argues that some of that's tied into state actors as well. And you're starting to see, for example, the lines between private enterprise and states blurring as we see what's going on in Russia, as an example. So to what degree does Russia retaliate for Starbucks and all these other agencies coming off their country and things like that? These are these are concerns I see for CFOs um, when we start thinking in terms of disinformation campaigns. And how big a risk is disinformation? So you talked about the structures that we have in place for our reporting standards around, you know, our general accounting, but you were starting to talk about how we report on things like supply chain. And some of that is less. Um, has has less standard uh, standards and regulatory areas in place. So so I, I guess you know how is that changing? And is there the you know is there anything changing in that side of things? So I guess it's it's all very situational and idiosyncratic to the enterprise and how reliant they are on some of these information systems in to, that that arise. And so it's really unique to the company and what kind of internal controls they might have over the sourcing and over the information streams that come internally. So keep in mind that internal information isn't really regulated so much. I mean, there may be, when we get into things like tracking labor or or environmental, there probably are some reporting rules within that system. 
um, that have to be modified or that have, sorry, that have to be followed. But with respect to most information systems, a lot of those are pretty much subject to the governance of the, of the infrastructure of the entity. And so one question might be, you know, are people lying to me? Do they have a reason to lie to me? Do I have enough internal controls in the system to tease that out? And that would be something that I would actually want to have conversations about with internal audit or some of the other actors in my institution. And maybe that's a board level discussion to think about what systems do we have to ensure that we have credible information through. Um, Another thing that could actually be happening too is that we're starting to see, for example, disinformation affecting and polarizing labor force. I know this is something that, for example, the U.S. military is, is dealing with right now because now the military, in my experience, the military was very sort of central information. You know, most of our information, most of the way we are trained to think come from a central source. But now you're seeing a lot of dissension and a lot of polarized media. And so a lot of the people within the U.S. military, and this isn't unique to the U.S. military. This could be any of our militaries. Uh, you know, we're, we're the, the evidence is very, very consistent that in our social media feeds, we're getting algorithmic information flows and they're very siloed. And so it may be that you've got two people working in your institution who think very differently from each other. Um, and that could affect anything from how you go about your business to whether they can even build a team together and collaborate together. So um, I know there are some agencies working on working on how social media and how disinformation is affecting our divergent beliefs. And so some of your labor force could also be dealing with disinformation and their their prior beliefs and whether whether I mean, you know, you can imagine now, for example, I can give you one specific example because I'm not related to them, but Disney comes to mind. So of all of the enterprises, Disney, everybody has their childhood vision of Disney as an entity in a place where, I don't know, I, I have personally sensed that they've been pretty much apolitical. It's a place where you go and you just forget about the world. In fact, you disappear and you just kind of get absorbed into the entertainment and you forget about sort of the societal stuff. But now they've been politicized in the United States. And so that politization politicization of, of Disney and the brand might affect how people within the institution even operate and whether they start separating. And, and some of them might believe one way, the others might believe another way, and that could affect your operations even. No, that's a, that's a really good. So we, we talked about the risk for supply chain and making sure you have the right internal controls to control disinformation. We've talked about the danger, I guess, dis, disinformation on both, um, you know, the internal, I guess, the internal harmony of the organization and how it's perceived by its labor force. And I guess there's a second risk, isn't there, about um, how disinformation can it impact on your you know, your view, your brand from customer's perspective, you talked about sort of malicious disinformation, particularly with cybercrime, people trying to manipulate stock price. So how how big a risk is that so at the moment of interest? I, I don't have data to suggest it. And even, even my colleague we invited who came in and, and had a discussion who does this as professional practice didn't really have a lot of data. He has a lot of anecdotes. His His discussion was that as we start getting more um, polarization and we get more, I don't know, agitation around state actors. He thinks state actors are behind a lot of it. And so his perspective, I think, if I can characterize what he communicated, I think he said that we can expect more of this to happen through state actors or through through sponsored entities from state actors. So a lot of the activity is happening through private enterprise who people who are getting paid to run disinformation campaigns. And that's actually part of the webinar we literally held last night where one of, one of the colleagues, um, Dr. Emma Bryant is doing research on who are the people or who are the entities that are profiteering from disinformation campaigns. And so they might be running bots on Twitter as an example uh, and somebody might, you and I could come up with enough money to pay them and they could just start maligning some, some, some person or some organization. Um, and some of that, again, is at least political actors or state actors. And, and we've seen some evidence of that. I, 
I, I he, he has a sense that this is almost a growth space because there's more control and people are, he says, it, it, maybe I'm paraphrasing for him or maybe I'm also mixing in my own beliefs, but as people start losing faith in information sources, it becomes easier to manipulate information. And so I think um, un, until we start seeing more I don't know whether it's accountability at the platform level, such as Facebook or, or Twitter or some of these other, you know, even some of the news media, some traditional news. I think until we hold them more accountable, perhaps, and and or we chase down some of the actors who are profiteering from from this, it's I, I, I suspect we'll see more, not less growth. So there was quite a few things in there. I just want to clarify for those that are listening. So when you say state actors, what do you mean by that state by that statement? Go- government entities, or I should say, government entities don't make decisions. So one of my colleagues would actually get on me for that because government entities are are not human beings. So human beings who run government entities, so people with agendas who have political power. So Vladimir Putin might be one example there are others so you so and this was this was actually a discussion we had last night about for example there's a blurred line when we're talking about political campaigns for example we kind of get into this blurred area between sort of grandiose bravado type messaging which is more of a commercial for why you should vote for me into where we get into blatant blatant disinformation where we're basically undermining people's belief system and it's a kind of a gray area there, but you can start seeing where political actors have a lot of potential advantage from manipulating and, and you can control, you can affect the outcome of systems if you can get enough of this disinformation into the populace. And so um, if, if you want to push for a particular outcome, then you can run these systems. And so he believes that there's going to be a lot more state-sponsored disinformation campaigns for political effect. And do you think it's going to go... That was yeah, do you think it... Does he or you have any opinion about whether that might move more into the private space? So um, individual entities... Using I, I believe it will. So I, I know that he did, but I also believe it will. And here's why. Because the blurring... We're now blurring private and, and public. So we're starting to see where a lot... Of, so we're demanding a lot more social. And we're... So the whole ESG initiative is that we're trying to become we're trying to ask private enterprise to become more socially responsible and in doing so and in many of our ceos and many of our leaders are inherently feeling like they have an ability to make social statements or to try to affect social change in some way and so many are actually quite vocal about their positions on things so and some are not vocal about it, but they're kind of implicitly or explicitly forced into making implicit or explicit political decisions. I'll give you an example. BP, for example, uh, there were a series of FT articles about BP's ownership of Rosneft and the fact that the BP CEO was sitting on the Rosneft board. And I don't know whether that was a specific catalyst, but it, it's not surprising that very quickly thereafter, FT ran a bunch of articles. And, it, and I don't want to necessarily attribute that to FT specifically. But there was a lot of scrutiny about BP's engagement with Rosneft after the invasion of, of Ukraine. And so you'll see now that BP has um, divested from Rosneft and, and the CEO stepped down off the Rosneft board. Well, that is a probably more of, and I don't have any insight into BP's decisions, but that's probably more of a business decision based on the social climate. But you can imagine where a state actor might view that as now a blended political statement it might come after BP as one example. And I'm just using BP as an example because it's not specific to BP. I mean, Starbucks just divested, McDonald's just pulled out. So it's not BP specific. It's But these decisions that CEOs are making either are explicitly or implicitly tied to some political political action. And And I think what we're now seeing is that everybody is now, business is very, very, very sensitive to geopolitical risk. Supply chain is a classic example where if you invest a lot of your supply chain in a particular region, and then all of a sudden there's a geopolitical issue, whether it's a war, a conflict, a takeover, authoritarian, whatever, 
Now, all of a sudden, you're really stuck there having to grapple with the geopolitical outcome because you're centrally located. And so now a lot of the discussions we need to be having, and I'm sure are happening in boardrooms right now, is, is how do we diversify our supply chain? So, so there's a lot of risk in the the impacts of things you're saying. So if you're tying yourself to those state, those political conversations, then obviously you're exposing vulnerability. It, is there any risk for those that aren't necessarily at the, the Starbucks and the BP level from in terms of disinformation? Are you seeing anything on a, on a smaller, more local scale? Or is it still the realms of the big political and state entities? I do think that you, I think, I think every private enterprise should expect the fact that they are subject to disinformation risk in some way or form. And, and it can manifest in multiple ways. I do think that even the localized, the smaller entities, um, some of those stuff that you might see is you might actually un- inadvertently become involved with some of the political polarization. So, for example, you might, I, I, I'm trying to give you, I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a better example. I mean, I'm going back to Disney as an example, but this could actually manifest in a smaller way. Disney didn't, I don't sense that they asked to be part of a, a political campaign in, that was, you know, to be brought into that. And they were sort of drug into that. At least that's my perspective of what happened there. Um, I also think, I really think that the labor market issues and this, the, the customer, customer demand issues are also related to, to some of these things um, where, the polarization that's coming off of the disinformation can affect a lot about who's buying your product, who's willing to work for you. What does it mean to be affiliated with the institution? I think that's in there as well. And I do think that a lot of people are learning that to trust information sources, even that we used to think are credible. I'll I'll give you a quick example. I actually had a conversation with some senior partners in accounting and audit specifically. And I said, you know, despite all the concerns about certain, um, you know, we've uncovered a bunch of frauds and some of the audit companies are, are being uh, tied into and being correctly, you know, they're, they're getting fines and stuff like that, um, regulatory fines and things for their, their, how they've dealt with some of these frauds. But if we put that aside, I mean, fundamentally, they have a reputation for trying to uncover, if you will, truth or trying to help identify or provide some sort of comfort around information, but it wouldn't be too difficult. I don't think for some chaos actor to go out there and malign them and try to say that, you know, you can't, you can't believe them anymore. That Whatever they say is untruthful. And, and I, I wonder how quickly we're going to move into that regime where one or two people can say, I don't want people to listen to what they have to say. I want them to look over here. And I want them to, so I'm going to start a targeted campaign to undermine their reputation. So they're reliant, their entire business model is reliant on the credibility of their reputation and the way that they do procedures and processes. But we're starting to learn that there's a whole swath of certain subsets of society where it doesn't matter how much evidence you bring to the table. They don't care. And they're going to listen to the charismatic person who's pushing a narrative that's different. And this gets into some of the discussions we've had with a psychiatrist around um, delusion-like beliefs and things like that. I know I'm meandering off here, but I, I sense that we have, a, we have this tendency to think that if we provide credible evidence, that if we do due diligence, that if people rely on the historical reputation, that we'll be okay. And I'm now sensing that it's very, very easy for some chaos actor to get involved and get emotion going that will disrupt all of that credibility very quickly. And we're seeing all kinds of evidence of that in certain regions of the world where it doesn't take very long for a narrative to seed through an infrastructure system that undermines all that infrastructure. Yeah, I can think of two classic examples that we've seen, certainly here in the UK, the concept of Brexit, uh, that was incredibly polarizing across, you know, across families, across businesses, across colleagues as well. It became a really um, politically sensitive and um, individually emotional issue for what was, you know, a very political piece. And if we think about COVID as well, there was a huge amount of emotion that the, the um, 
all of the conversations about vaccines and how you approach that within the workplace that you know there's two very very big issues and and yeah you're right we there was a huge amount of polarization even within you know speaking to customers speaking to the workforce there were some big differences that that drove some challenging situations across the board and a lot of that was done if you take a look at unpacking it a lot of it was done by doing psych, uh, psych, psychological analysis of audiences within the social media framework and that some of that work was done at the site. Some of that work was done at Cambridge. There's a center that actually evaluates what people, you know, psychological beliefs out of how we engage on social media. But then there were other actors who came and started manipulating the data. And even actually there's a, there's a lawsuit. Um, I think it was the DC attorney general is now bringing uh, Mark Zuckerberg in for his association with Cambridge Analytica, which was involved with a lot of initiatives, particularly around Brexit. And, but if you, if you unpack it and you study it, it's, I'm starting to realize that it's really not that difficult to get a decent swath of society to run viral feeds around negative information. And that can topple virtually any reputation that you've built up in any credibility because it's like, no, 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 they're, they're lying. I'm telling the truth. And you can present as much data as you want, but there's a subset of society that will just literally ignore you. I mean, to, to me, to me, that's that's critical because I think everything I've done in the last fifteen or so years is sort of implicitly relying on the stability of the financial reporting institutions we operate in. So, so, so let me frame that differently. You know, I've been teaching so I've been teaching financial reporting, advanced financial reporting, and trying to improve. I mean, or going back to one of your earlier questions, you're like, well, how do we improve the audit system and how do we improve the financial reporting system? And I'm like, I've been spinning that dialogue for years. But it all implicitly relies on, and maybe one of the reasons I pivoted out is that all implicitly relies on our ability to kind of modify what we're already doing. But there's an inherent trust that that's okay, that's that's sufficient. That if we can get, for example, better data technology in audit, if we if we can expand scope in audit, um, if you know better transparency, even blockchain presumably can help some of the audit tests, right? So we can have all these discussions. But at the end of the day, it all boils down to an audit opinion. And the audit opinion is released and people rely on it. But who relies on it are the people who have been trained to rely on it. And so we have an implicit assumption that that's a stable institution. And then I see somebody, and I'll name him Elon Musk. And he comes comes along and he says, you know, you, Securities Exchange Commission, are telling me what I can and cannot say. And I can't tell you how many chief financial officers who are publicly traded companies I've spoken to who are very, very nervous about what they communicate publicly to the point where they will often say nothing publicly because they do not want any kind of legal scrutiny. They don't want to move stock price. So here we have an environment where people, the system has, I would argue, correctly constrained the scope of what you're able to communicate. I mean, we have very explicit rules on what earnings means and we have very... And even going into non-GAAP earnings is like this, ooh, we're going outside the box of what's allowed. But then you get a guy like Elon Musk, hey, wait a minute, I'm allowed to say whatever I want. And you, the Securities Exchange Commission, cannot constrain me. And I have a First Amendment right under the U.S. Constitution. And that is now, I think, going through higher courts. And so that's a very interesting case, a litmus test for me, for whether any of our institution can sustain this. Because... Because when you when you remove that infrastructure, that I will admit in our field it's it's quite flawed. Our, our, I mean, look, we still have Carillion, we still have Wirecard, we still have problems, but our infrastructure is arguably a hundred million times better than what I would argue, what I observe at least. I'm speaking on my behalf. What Facebook has, and and, and I want to be fair to Facebook. I do know people on Facebook who are working on fact checking. I know people. I know they're working algorithmic tweaks. I don't want to malign Facebook. But in my world, our institutional infrastructure is is very, very solid. It's been time tested. We don't have that many frauds that are exposed. It seems to be reasonably stable and reliable, arguably. Then you move into all other media forms and the societal impact there is arguably much, much greater. So, I mean, we're not fomenting civil war in potential civil war in 
accounting for financial markets, but we are potentially in Facebook and Twitter and Truth Social. But isn't there a piece about even if your your mechanisms are robust and you are you do have those structures in place, even if you produce correct information, from what you're saying, actually there's there's a highly likely chance that that will not be believed in the first place. That even when we put forwards correct information, backed up by like you say these regulatory structures. That actually there's there's a psychological component to how people are consuming information that could um, that actually exposes quite a big risk to a lot of organizations and volatility into the share market, I guess. So I think that ties into in some cases the celebrity of certain people. So I, let's use Tesla as an example. One could argue that Tesla could report something that's gone through financial reporting standards and audit and everything. So Tesla reports this out there. Uh, but maybe Elon Musk, who has his devout following because of who he is, he's a personality, he says something completely different. Maybe I'm, this is all hypothetical. How many of his followers are going to believe the audited report versus what he communicates? And this gets into this, this gets into what we call self-selection on the audience. So um, and I, I mean, I've been trained inherently to be very critical. You know, I'm a critical thinker. I think most people who do any kind of financial analysis are critical thinkers. Um, I, I tend to be skeptical when I see data presented to me. I tend to dig in. I try to triangulate. I want to kind of look for confirming sources. And so I do reliability litmus tests and everything before I do any kind of major decision of any kind. I mean, I'm the kind of person who's looking at all the reliability reports before I buy a refrigerator or a car, right? So I, I'm not usually easily duped, but I recognize that I'm, I've been trained and for whatever reason I'm in this path. And, and I, I, I think the people in my community, the people probably in this audience have a tendency to say, you know, we're very skeptical, we're very critical thinkers. But I think it's pretty obvious to see now that there's a huge swath of society, many of whom are, are product, you know, labor market, product market, whoever, even our parents. I mean, in my family, my family has broken down. I can't have conversations with people in my family over things like, you know, whether it's Brexit or whether it's it's U.S. politics. We cannot have conversations anymore. The pandemic, whether the vaccine is safe. We, we, we can't have these conversations because I can present as much data as I want, I can sit here and bring in every possible, and I've read them, believe me, before I took a vaccine, I read every medical piece of medical literature I could about vaccine efficacy. I even started teaching some of this stuff in a risk course in a business context. And, and, but there, there are, there's a good group of society who will believe some charismatic person's statements that then go viral. And and so we've started to study that a little bit more about why. Why does it happen? And within our context, you know, for now, when we're going into financial markets, we tend to focus on the data that's credible. We tend to focus on um, all the data that's been validated and verified in, in our systems. But we're seeing more and more and more and more and more data coming in from outside. So we're seeing environmental data coming in. We're seeing societal data coming in. We're seeing um, all kinds of updates happening in social media and other outlets. And so there's so much other data coming into these decisions and it's confusing. And also we're not operating in a, we're operating in a highly volatile, very energized human space right now. I mean, I think people are very energized and charged and, and very polarized and so I think assuming our institutions are stable is not something I'm choosing to do. And so I'm starting to try to introduce case studies where the institutions are under attack. I think that's a discussion I think is kind of fun to have in an academic environment, but I also think it reflects a little bit of what we're seeing in society now. And so we've talked a lot about this. There's a huge amount, I guess, of risk out there from from business for businesses of all sizes. So we've but is there anything that can be done to mitigate or minimize that exposure that you're talking about either on your course or, you know, um, in terms of the, 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 the summit itself? So about how we actually manage the risk and minimize um, the impact it may have on, on our individual businesses. 
So if we're talking specifically about disinformation risk, I, I see disinformation risk. So the answer, I think, is yes. I think awareness is key and having at least addressing it in discussion form will help start that dialogue. So I think the thing that's important for me is to, and this is why we, I've found myself meandering in how I'm communicating back to you. Disinformation risk isn't a single risk. Disinformation risk is an amplification of all other risks. So disinformation amplifies, you know, forced human migration. It amplifies geopolitical. It amplifies um, polarization. It amplifies medical. It, it's amplified all the other pandemic risks. So I think the key is to sit down and look at disinformation as like a tree of risks. And so how it comes in. And so what are the sources? The, the more direct risks um, that we discussed, for example, I'm getting bad information coming into my pipeline. That's one source of disinformation risk. And again, I'm using disinformation as, a, as an intentional. So it may be that we have bad data coming through our system. Everybody has bad data coming through their systems because of noise or mistakes. Everybody has bad data. This is one where some actor is malignantly disrupting or corrupting disinformation to exploit us in some way. So that's more of like a in a way, it's like an information hack coming through our system. That's one type of disinformation. Another type of disinformation is, is a manipulative outside actor, which is a direct source, such as the kind of thing where we're having market manipulation stuff. And that's where, um, so, so to the first part where we have bad information coming into our system, that's where internal controls comes in. Like, you know, do we have proper internal controls about how we're getting our information? Can we do spot checking and, and, and audits of the information sources where it matters? So, you know, in some cases, I don't really care that it's, that it's flawed, but in other cases, it could exacerbate um, some sort of compliance risk or something like that. With respect to an outside actor, um, some of the discussions that we had and, and, and the partner we had also echoed this or, um, was basically being aware that you could have outside actors having a very vibrant PR campaign and also having ex-ante, so an upfront messaging. So a consistent lean forward message of who we are, what our beliefs are, what our system is. So reputation management before anybody starts attacking you is really key. So people actually have a foundation of understanding who you are character-wise. So it's harder to believe the disinformation. If you have disinformation attacking you and you are reactive to it, it's much harder to combat. Because a lot of the disinformation is done utilizing techniques that are like hooks and they get into the psyche and they are very hard to, to reverse once they're out there. And then the other disinformation risks that can be mitigated um, are a function of how will they manifest. So do I, do I sense that there's labor, labor polarization? That's an HR problem. That's an organizational psychology problem. That's one where you take, you know, tests of the psychological safety within my labor pool. Am I seeing that that tension is somehow affecting how people perceive who we are as an entity or somehow destroying team cohesion? So that's like an internal assessment that your HR or org psych people can do. Um, you know, some of the other stuff, it's really hard to get your head around because we even had a discussion about Disney as an example. I, 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 I'm trying to figure out in Disney's history when, if ever, they actually were concerned about raising to the national political level about some of the discussions that are happening down in the state of Florida, which could spill over. I don't know. It, this is, I think, that's another external actor thing where I think their PR could really step in. And you obviously, you talked a bit about how awareness and almost like work before you get um, hit with the disinformation impact. Do you think education for, for both staff and, you know, and um, the, the labor force is going to, would, would support that? Because I think that's what the, um, if we just go to the war in Ukraine, that's what they were doing, weren't they? They were trying to put information and awareness of the disinformation out before it could be put through all of these bots and all of these conversations. So by having that, they almost mitigated some of it, not all of it, but some of it. So do yeah, you feel like, yeah. That's what I'm understanding. So I'm actually reaching out to a, I, I know there are people in Finland. From what I understand, Finland has some of the best educational infrastructure against disinformation. They actually teach grade school children disinformation. And from what I understand in their curriculum, 
the grade school children, so we're talking, I don't know exactly what age, imagine 10, 11, 12 year olds writing disinformation campaigns. So they're actually taught how to write propaganda so they understand the underlying features of propaganda. And my understanding is that that's done because they are constantly being surrounded by Russian disinformation coming into their system. And they realize that they needed to treat, teach critical thinking through their society. And my, again, my understanding from having a casual read is that they've got some of the best insulation against in their society against disinformation campaigns. So yes, I do think there should be some of that. I, I also think it depends on where we are in the cycle. So I do in our program, in our master's of accounting program at Cambridge, we introduced the um, interpersonal dynamics curriculum, which is built off of the NTL human interaction laboratory. That's a lot of words, but fundamentally, fundamentally boils down to um, the ability to recognize that if you're going to do any kind of leadership or change management, that you have to really, really understand the human beings you're working with. And you have to get them to understand that they are inherently human and we're all at our core. We all have vulnerabilities. We all have very similar needs. So regardless of what culture you come from, what background, whatever, anything from sexual preferences to gender, you know, identity, all that stuff, at the core, we all have fundamental needs and we all have our own sort of traumas that we come into. And, and when we start getting into these polarized worlds, a lot of that is artificial a lot of that is a sense of a need to belong to an in-group um, for a sense of identity. But when we have a, a, a very good facilitator, we can actually rip that apart, break that down and realize that we're all just human beings and we really don't need to dislike each other. And so this is, and that, that allows for, you know, better collaborative team building and things like that. So this is where a good organizational psychologist can help understand because polarization is in all of our communities. Now, some entities will naturally gravitate to, a siloed kind of belief system. So one, for example, that is very active on environmental cleanup is almost certainly going to pull in a certain kind of belief. You know, most of the employees there are going to be very of like mind typically. So there are some entities where polarization isn't the problem. In fact, and I don't know how much of a problem it is, but they're selecting on a certain type of people. And so they're probably all very siloed and they're all getting the same information sources because they're all feeding off the same algorithms themselves because they're, they're like-minded or they wouldn't be part of that organizational's purpose. Um, so, but I do think an awareness of disinformation and also recognizing that disinformation, again, I, I see this as it's, it's, it's an accelerant for all societal and all risk problems. It's like the core gasoline, if you will, petrol for all of the problems that we're dealing with. So it exacerbates the geopolitical risk. I mean, the entire Russian campaign is built on disinformation. Decades. Yeah, it's 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 a big challenge. You know, the political piece is one, but I think the the, the challenge is it's coming a bit more mainstream and starting to impact, like you say, business and creating this volatility that you know for financial you know um, success that we need and a good economy we need less volatility, not more, which is the. The, the scary piece, I guess. So um, very aware that we've reached the end of this um, the session. So I, obviously, this is a huge topic. There is so much to talk about. And I feel like I could ask you questions for the next couple of hours, but I won't. Um, so um, how can people learn more? What resources would you recommend or share with people if they want to understand this better and the, and the risks and exposure? So I'm, I'm actually, it's interesting because I'm just getting started in my inquiry around disinformation. Again, I, my, my starting reference point was simply the understanding of financial reporting and the potential to manipulate that and how can we improve that system because disinformation hits societal problems through that system. Um, but this expansion into this other area has led me into all kinds of space um, around it. So we're running a disinformation summit, which is probably too grandiose of a label. We're basically running a, a series of webinars at Cambridge and you can Google Cambridge Disinformation Summit and you'll find our webpage. It's probably the fastest way for me to get you there. We've got a series of webinars we have with experts in certain subtopics. For example, we just did one on business risks and dis disinformation. We interviewed, although it's not on our YouTube because we were not allowed to record it, but we interviewed one of the leading UK propagandists for the UK government. Um, one of the most interesting ones that we do have on our YouTube channel is a 
a psychiatrist at UCLA Medical Center who does conspiratorial beliefs, delusion-like beliefs, and he was in willful ignorance. And he was helping me understand this other, you know, we mentioned that, that I'm critical thinker, but why don't, why aren't other people critical thinkers? Why don't they try to access more data? Why do they shut down information sources, things like that? So he's in there too. So, so the Cambridge Disinformation Summit is not designed to be the core learning objective, but it's designed to be a hub for other learning. And so that is helping facilitate more exposure to other pieces. Um, and then with respect to some of the elements about social media, I guess we'll just, we'll leave it there. We'll start there and then we can hub out from there. Because <laughs> be, I can talk forever about other sources. Um, but on Twitter, Brian Class, K-L-A-A-S, is a good resource about dis- disinformation in um, autocratic environments, as is Ruth Ben-Giat. So she's done a lot of work in that space as well. And I recommend them on Twitter in that context. Um, and I'll quit there. But I'm also available by email and I can or LinkedIn and I can help people find other resources. But I do think it's critical that leaders of, of, of private enterprise need to think about this. I really, really do, because it's we're going to see more of this as people are weaponizing social media. Yeah, the, the problem's going to get worse before it gets better if we're not very, very careful. And I think even if we are very careful, it might still get worse, to be fair. And some of the solutions are, are a bit daunting too, because some of the solutions include um, potential encroachments on free speech rights and, and censorship and things like that. So it's not an easy fix. It's a very delicate thing to consider. And if we allow governments to say, okay, well, we're going to shut down, you know, what you're allowed to say, then that that's not necessarily an improvement, right? So, so it's really not one where you can get a quick solution out. Now, you, you then run the uh, the danger of do you trust the person that's trying to shut down what you're trying to say in the first place? So you could end up in a in a slightly different uh, disinformation cycle. So, well, thank you so much, Alan. For those that are listening that are interested in any of those links mentioned just previously, we will be popping them in the show notes. So please do check them out. Um, the uh, the summit, I believe, is scheduled for July this uh, 2023, if i am got that right. We moved it to 2023, yes, for pandemic. We wanted, we wanted to make sure people could come. But the webinars are brilliant. So we will put the link into to the um, both the webinars and the summit if anyone's interested in exploring. And a, a massive thank you to Alan who's taken time out um, to speak to us today. And it's it's a really interesting topic. So thank you for sharing what you've learned so far. And it sounds like you have a real journey ahead of you exploring where this might go. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks for listening too.